Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from The Phantom Menace, made in 1999. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If you're listening to this episode, you're a fan of John Williams and this podcast. And I hope you'll show how much of a fan of this podcast you are by taking a couple of minutes to nominate this show for Best Music Podcast, as well as the People's Choice Award for the annual Podcast Awards. Just go to podcastawards.com, sign up, and vote for The Baton, A John Williams Musical Journey. Voting ends on July 31st, 2020. When George Lucas announced that he was making a new trilogy of Star Wars films set before the events of the original trilogy, fans went crazy. It had been 14 years since a new Star Wars movie had been released, and when Return of the Jedi unspooled in 1983, we all believed that might be the last time we would take a trip to that galaxy far, far away, at least on the big screen. And for John Williams fans, it meant a lot of excitement over the maestro's return to the genre that made him an international movie star. But, what would the music sound like? Since the events in this trilogy would take place before Luke and Leia's birth, focusing mostly on the path Anakin Skywalker took to becoming Darth Vader, would Williams have to make an extremely new set of new themes for the new characters and worlds we would see? I wasn't the only person anxious to find out, and I have one of those eager John Williams fans joining me on the baton today. And back on the show for the second time, please welcome... Sadiq Hussein to the show. Hi, Sadiq. Hello again, Jeff, and greetings to all the listeners of The Button. Thank you for welcoming me to another show, this time showcasing the music of John Williams for a Star Wars film, my favourite. The score we talked about in the first show I did was, in my opinion, as I mentioned it then, the musical precursor to A New Hope. And as I listened to your episodes relating to that original trilogy, I was eager to be part of The Phantom Menace, a new beginning as opposed to a new hope, if you like. Sadiq joined us last for a discussion of the score to Black Sunday, which Williams worked on just before starting to write music for Star Wars. And now here we are 39 films later talking about the prequel trilogy. To say I was anxious to see this film is quite the understatement, Jeff. I was lucky to visit the Leavesden Studios here in England where most of the movie was filmed in the summer of 1997 while they were actually filming the film. And two years later, my son Farhan and I went to the European premiere in London and had tickets to see the movie the following day as the first UK screening. Yes, you definitely have me beat. All I did was just make sure I had the day off work so I could see the first screening on opening day in Denver, Colorado. I didn't want to see the midnight screening with people going crazy and talking and screaming while I'm trying to watch the film and listen to the music. 
Really, Jeff, uh, me and my friends and uh, family love the buzz of a midnight screening, the first screening, all that excitement and build up. And of course, to avoid any of the inevitable spoilers that you get from media coverage. And there was a huge promotional blitz to get people excited for this first Star Wars film in many years. Remembering how popular the score was in 1977 to the original Star Wars, 20th Century Fox released a video on MTV featuring scenes from the movie and some behind-the-scenes stuff as well. It was set to music that would become the centrepiece of the film called Duel of the Fates, which of course we'll talk about later. The promotional campaign in the run-up to the release of the film also included several TV commercials that each centred around a particular character in the film. And they use a lot of the music from Williams' score underneath the originally written poems, written specifically for these commercials. A very bold move. It will be a hard life. One without reward, without remorse, without regret. A path will be placed before you. The choice is yours alone. Do what you think you cannot do. It will be a hard life, but you will find out who you are. Bold indeed, and I would urge your listeners to check out these eight-tone poems on either StarWars.com or YouTube. I remember seeing that promotional video featuring Duel of, of the Fates and turning it off after 30 seconds. It was true then, and it's true now, that I try not to hear the music for a film before I've seen it, and I didn't want to hear Duel of the Fates before seeing the film. I would have been thinking about it too much instead of discovering it as Williams intended it to be discovered. Actually, I felt the exact opposite, Jeff. I wanted to hear the music before the film. I was that excited for the for the music. In actual fact, the music surpassed my expectations and really helped to sell the film to me. Star Wars was indeed back, and so was Mr. Williams. I'd bought the soundtrack CD as soon as it was released. I believe it was early May, so I had plenty of time to listen to it and get spoiled by the inevitable track titles. Oh, don't get me started on those spoilers in the track titles of that original CD release. I'm glad I bought it after seeing the film. But as producer of the score, I think John Williams was in charge of creating the track titles, which is probably true because he puts lots of spoiler alerts in the track titles of his soundtrack releases, which is another reason why you should never buy the music before seeing the film. Well, actually, for the sequel trilogy, I took your lead, Jeff, and didn't buy the music before I saw the films, purely to avoid those plot spoilers. Yeah, that was a good choice. Anyway, Williams was reuniting with George Lucas, who was not only writing the screenplay, but directing the film as well. Lucas said after the original Star Wars that he would never direct another film, but he said he didn't like some of the directing choices Irvin Kirshner and Richard Marquand made in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, respectively. Plus, he knew as director he would have much more control over the final product than he would just as screenwriter or executive producer. I think he figured that out working with Steven Spielberg on the Indiana Jones movies. And he was excited to be using new digital filmmaking tools, many of which would be advancing the art of filmmaking, 
much like Lucas did with Star Wars in 1977. Lucas is telling three stories in The Phantom Menace and the prequel trilogy as a whole. There's the story of Anakin Skywalker, the events that will lead to the creation of the Empire, and the battle between the Sith and the Jedi. Most of the story featured in The Phantom Menace was written more than a decade earlier as Lucas was trying to understand more about the characters he created. You might know that the original plan was to start the Star Wars series with this first episode, but Lucas found the middle section more exciting, and I have to agree with him on that one. After filming finished, John Williams had a lot of time to compose this score. He started in October 1998 with some of the early edits of the movie and didn't start recording music until the following February, mostly because editing and special effects were taking a bit longer than expected, and Lucas wanted to give the maestro enough time to come up with the score with scope. And even while Williams was busy recording the music, Lucas was making some changes to the film, thanks to Steven Spielberg's suggestions. So Williams was writing music up until the final day of music recording, according to various newspaper reports. Yes, it's not unheard of for the composers like Williams making changes just before recording, even in the recording booth, as it's not until you're there with the musicians and the editor of the film can you be sure that the music as written fits the visuals and conveys the right emotions. And this recording would again be done here in London and returning to the world-famous Abbey Road Studios, performed by a 100-plus members of the London Symphony Orchestra. But this time they were joined by London Voices, adding their choral contributions as the score demanded. The sessions were spread over eight days in early February 1999. It's great that you mentioned this return to the LSO because... I was able to speak with Maxine Kwok, who played first violin on this score back in 1999. Let's take a listen to that conversation now, and then Sadiq and I will be back to talk about the score. Maxine Kwok, it's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on The Baton. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. What a privilege to be invited to talk about some John Williams soundtracks with you on your podcast. I'm good. It's it's not such a nice day here in London, but never mind. That's okay. I'm sure you're you're very happy to be talking about John Williams. It makes, makes my day always sunnier when I'm talking about John Williams. <laughs> I bet. So before we talk about your work with The Phantom Menace and working with John Williams, I want to know how you got to secure this really highly coveted gig of performing with the London Symphony Orchestra. Well, it's funny you've asked me to talk about John Williams because in a roundabout way, his music is kind of the reason I ended up joining the London Symphony Orchestra. I Obviously, the very, very famous original films from the sort of 70s, late um, late 70s into early 80s. I was very much aware of the music he had produced for that because my family are very, very big Star Wars fans. So I grew up with that kind of his sound in my head. And when I was sort of old enough to know this was LSO, I thought, wow, what? how amazing it would be to be in that orchestra one day 
to play, be able to play this amazing music. And that very much sort of fueled this idea that I wanted to be in the LSO. So all my friends know that I'm a, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And it was something I was able to tell John Williams <laughs> the first time I met him when, you know, we came to record, which was very, pretty much as soon as I joined the orchestra, pretty much one of the very first things I ever did. Oh my gosh, what an amazing privilege to have that be your first thing that you're doing with the London Symphony Orchestra. First, you get part of the most coveted orchestra, if not in England, but all the world. But your first job is recording Star Wars music. Yes, I think it was definitely one of the very first things I did, um, especially having a sort of prolonged time at Abbey Road as well. Sometimes we would just dip in and out of going to the studio, you know, just for a day here and there. But obviously when you're recording for such a big feature film like that, you end up spending quite a few days on the trot there. So it was a really, really eye-opening experience for me and one I, I will never forget. Okay, so how soon before the first recording day did you know that this was going to be happening, that you'll be performing on the Phantom Menace score? I think we would have known it was John Williams. And it's quite hard to remember such because lots of films are shrouded in secrecy. And sometimes we know, but we're not supposed to tell. And sometimes we're not even sure ourselves. And movies tend to have working titles. So it probably wouldn't have been down as, as Star Wars The Phantom Menace anyway but I'm pretty sure we were aware of actually what it was. So there was a great deal of excitement because of course, just with the whole idea of Star Wars, it'd been so many years since we had had anything from that kind of um, the Star Wars whole, you know, uh, kind of saga. So the, the momentum of it was was very special. And I think we were, we were so excited to sort of revisit another generation on, if you like, although there were people who who had played on the original who were part of the new films. Uh, as you said, you were able to tell John Williams how much Star Wars meant to you. Tell me about that conversation that you were able to have with him. Well, he's a very um, s almost forbidding character when you look at him. He's so professional. He works at a really um, high energy pace. And I was quite nervous. Obviously I, I was young, I was new to the orchestra and this was a huge hero of mine and an absolute legend already back then. And I, I approached him in a break. We have, you know, little breaks during, during the day and I think the the best way to say was I he sat down to um, just change some kind of orchestration um, with an assistant, and I was very nervous. And I walked up to him, and I was I was sort of like, "Oh, Mr. Williams, I'm I'm really thrilled to meet you." And I was wondering if, he, and I sort of rambled on about how my I'd come from this family of huge Star Wars fans, and my dad in particular loved Star Wars and was always telling us about the first time he'd seen the film. And I had brought with me um, the sort of uh, CD cover box set one. And I, and I asked him if he would sign it. 
And I was a bit nervous about it because obviously, A, I thought, am I sort of disturbing him doing something? But he was so charming. And and he said, of course, I will. And he wrote a, a lovely note on it. And, and he said, oh, your dad must be so proud of you to be in such a fantastic orchestra. And and actually, unbeknownst to me at the time, um, and, and it's one of my most treasured possessions, a, a friend in my section took a photo while this exchange was happening. So <laughs> you very clearly see that, you know, he's John Williams is sitting at a desk surrounded by scores and I'm I'm there sort of presenting him with this um with this C D cover and, and he's very charmingly talking to me and, and signing. So this is such a wonderful memory for me and he he is and I have obviously spoken to him in the years since but he remains to be such such a sort of generous, lovely person. But once he's on the podium, he, he's so professional and he knows exactly what he wants and what he's doing. It, it's quite intimidating, I find. Uh, quite a scary person to work for, if you like. Well, that's interesting that he goes from this very charming person to intimidating and a little bit scary on the podium. But how how is it when you're recording, and obviously there are many takes of a particular cue that you have to record, and let's say, for example, you know, the string section just kind of um, misses a beat here and there or something, and, you know, he gives you instruction. Is it the kind of instruction that makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm really not a good violinist. I'm a little nervous about this. Or or uh, from what I've heard, it, it could be actually quite gentle and encouraging. I think when you're recording, you have to just take the um, the advice that's given or even just the fact that they say, sorry, first violins in bar 33, there was it sounded pretty awful or something. It's part of the process to be um, completely open to what is being heard, possibly, you know, not even even by the composer on the podium, but by the producers and engineers who are hearing the mix, how it will actually sound. And there will always be many takes of each of each segment anyway, because of needing safeties and just also getting to know um, the music because you won't have had the opportunity to see it beforehand. It will be, even if you're lucky when you arrive that morning, if it's on the stand, you're already doing quite well and you can leaf through it and have a little look. But often they will literally just come hot off the press. The librarian will sort of run around and say, right, here are the parts for, for this and you just the red light goes on 30 seconds later and you give it a go. So there will always be elements of things that aren't right because certainly with John Williams's music, it is pretty complicated and he writes a lot of notes. Um, certainly with Star Wars, with so many fight scenes, there's plenty of, you know, battles long-running loads of semi-quavers and things and you think oh my goodness we've actually just kind of read this through so nobody in essence can take it personally when you have to redo because we're just learning it as we go along and and sometimes even getting you know we need the instruction we need to be told this needs to come out or this isn't right or this this um this chord isn't well balanced and that and that is what orchestralic um, musicians expect so I don't think anyone minds really when certainly someone that great tells you it wasn't right and you need to do it again. 
Yeah, he's got a great ear for it. But this is something that I've always been uh, amazed at with the London Symphony Orchestra. Is every time I read something about the orchestra, it's about the amazing ability to sight read. And as you said, you get that music right in front of you, and you pretty much 30 seconds later, you've got to go. So is that something that you've always been good at doing, or is it something that you've developed over time? You definitely develop that kind of skill, and it's something you can develop. I'm not someone I would say that ever was a great sight reader as a student or in my youth because as musicians we're very much um there's an element of you know you make a mistake and you go back and you check and you redo it whereas when you're sight reading and you have to read at speed there are little minuscule things that go wrong that you in the heat of the moment have to forget about and move on straight away so chances are when you're recording you'll have and many, you know, many chances to do things. So, you know, the, the take they take is going to be pretty much perfect from, from however 80, 90 people that are in the studio. But it is something that um, London orchestras specifically are very quick because in our lifestyles of even performing concerts, we have a much quicker turnaround of concerts, if you like. We're not repeating things all the time. We tend to play, you know, one concert and move on to the next. So in essence, you become much faster at assimilating new music, which perhaps in other countries is not so prevalent. So it is it is to our advantage. We do get a lot of very, very difficult music that even has to be recorded, say, within a day. And we're able to, to really do that because you often don't have the ch- luxury or the chance to see the parts before a because of secrecy and b because the composer might still be writing it (laughs) until the very last moment or changes need to be made at the last moment and you need to give a composer you know five minutes to just rewrite something and then you cannot hold your hand up and say i'm sorry i need to have a look at this you just need to be able to record it straight away right so being a big star wars fan and obviously a musician you knew pretty much the music from the original trilogy almost by heart i'm sure so stepping sitting down there for the these sessions for the phantom menace did your expectations of what you would play or how the music would sound um fit what was actually on the page i think so i the music is so iconic from the classic films i don't think any of us really thought it could be matched in any way or that anything new could really come out of it. So it was real surprise and a real sort of pleasure to see all the new themes that have now become iconic within within themselves, but also to see old themes coming in, you know, the, the thrill of just hearing, you know, snippets of, of things or even, you know, the first time you get, a tiny bit of um, the dark, the Imperial March with with Anakin as a boy and things like that. And you think, oh, it shows so clearly how much the music is twinned with, with the film. And I think we were very, very excited because of course you, you know, everybody can sing all, you know, Leia's theme, Yoda's theme and the the classic main titles and we thought well it would be a shame if this new music doesn't really match up to it but 
it was very clear early on that this was also going to be fantastic, fantastically written and just memorable too. Now, in film scores, when you're recording, the, the music isn't usually recorded chronologically in film sequence. So it's always, you know, you're just, it's you know, you could be the first day recording the last reel of the film. Do you remember what the first day music was? Is there anything that stood out? <laughs> I don't remember that. One thing that does happen in specifically when John Williams records with us, he likes to have the huge screen put out at the back of um, the studio. This doesn't happen and I don't think it's ever happened in my 20 years of, of recording at Abbey Road, only with John Williams. He likes to see it, uh, you know, hugely above the orchestra. So what I do remember is <laughs> trying to play and look. It was definitely something exciting. Usually you would start with something with full orchestra so they can start balancing, so they can get an idea of the entire encompass of, of the orchestra, whether it's strings, wind, brass and percussion, so that they can start getting their levels. I remember it was exciting because obviously I was sight reading, so I was trying to keep one eye on my music and one eye, luckily being the first violins, you can look to the side and see. And I was looking up to see what was going on on screen and it was a lot of jumping around, it was a lot of action, it was a big, it was a big number. I felt very sorry for people who have their back to the screen, can't see anything. Because usually a composer will have a monitor, uh, whoever's conducting, whether it's a composer or, or a conductor, or both. <laughs> they like to have the, the screen, like a kind of like a mini TV or a laptop just in front of them. And if they're really nice, they will put up some TVs around the studio so you can get an idea. And I personally think that's great because you really need sometimes to see the essence of what you're recording. You, if you get an idea then of what, sometimes it's obvious if it's a, you know, fighting scene, but other times you might need a little bit of um, encouragement or just understanding about what a scene is about. And that's very, you can tell very quickly the moment you actually see what's happening on screen. But with Star Wars, it's very special because you see it, the size that it's going to be in the cinema, to be honest. So I do remember a lot of, it was like, oh, it's so exciting. There's so much going on. and But I kind of had to tear myself back to actually looking at my music. All right. So John Williams is very well known for using a lot of brass for Star Wars. I think that's kind of the instrument that seems to stand out the most. But obviously the strings have a very high importance. I mean, Leia's theme, Yoda's theme, all the quieter themes are really strong with string writing. Um, how would you describe um, the string writing that you remember from the classic trilogy and, and then performing it for The Phantom Menace? Oh, yes, it's, I love his string writing. Of course, most people, you know, they think of the opening trumpet, you know, B-flat and, and all this punchy stuff, the throne room and but without his incredible string writing, which really takes you into really into different worlds and these soaring melodies that you have. I mean, something like Leia's theme is just a dream to play. And to, to be honest, so many of his other film scores, which I absolutely adore. So it is, he is able to have this mix of 
of this sort of punchy action heroic brass stuff which you know is a dream for for brass players to play but the strings are certainly not left out and and we were not disappointed i mean my my favorite probably of the of that prequel trilogy would have ended up really being in the attack of the clones um across the stars if i could pick one sort of moment where we the strings kind of played and and for the first time this melody and i just thought that is so achingly beautiful and you know he he's able to really generously give incredible themes and melodies across the whole orchestra really nobody gets left out that's for sure well it's the london symphony orchestra he knows that every section is great so he makes sure everybody gets their due that's for sure <laughs> well i suppose so i mean he did say something once i can't remember which recording it would have been pro probably the first and he he stood on the podium and and we were doing a bit maybe had done it a few times and he has such an amazing ear to hit you know he'll be like well the fourth horn part that's actually supposed to be the sounding be natural or something and and he's just clocked that it's um that he's somebody a copyist has made a mistake and he said i know this sounds all really picky you know the way we're kind of having to put it together and repeat so many things but he did say there will be more people to go who will see this film then will collectively ever literally go to a classical music concert within the year and he's right everything had to be absolutely perfect and he is a perfectionist and it is a testament to his his writing skill that the music totally has a life of its own even without any part of the film or any action you know, people do sit at home and just listen to the actual soundtracks. And you can't say that about every film, that film music that's that's written. No, no, definitely not. So obviously when you're recording, you don't know exactly which scene some of the music you're playing goes with. But when you finally saw the film, uh, you know, did anything stand out and say, oh, yeah, now that scene makes sense now that I've, you know, I see the music with it. Anything that stood out musically for you when you finally saw the film? Yes, there was some, even actually before you see it, say, in the cinema, because you have the opportunity when we're recording to, if you like, go into the box. Sometimes they'll just call a little listening break. They say, I just want to, you know, John will say, I want to just check that through with picture really clearly. So if you're quite brave, and, and some of us do, we just pile into the into the booth where the mixing is all happening. And we were doing one particular action scene which seemed like oh it was so finicky with the beats getting everything and then um and it was very it was fast so there was no chance for me to actually really look up because i didn't want to you know there was a lot of syncopation a lot of off beats a lot of chords coming in loud and you didn't want to kind of mess it up so i thought i'm going to go and have watched that one in the booth so i go into the booth and i watch it and it's a really complicated fight scene and every single chord or symbol crash is is a hit of a lightsaber or you know a, a roll for somewhere someone jumping off a wall and and then i see ah oh, it it completely works within 
the context of what we're seeing. And I and I was so impressed because I just thought I don't know how anybody can comp compose something which sounds sounds organic, just sounds like a completely amazing action thing, but with all these hits literally every second, every few seconds. And I remember being absolutely blown blown away by that. And and also it was quite funny because some of the scene wasn't quite finished. <laughs> so you'd sort of suddenly have five seconds of something and then right. one second of um, green screen <laughs> or even an artist's impression. And you think, oh, suddenly uh, you you lose the, uh, the mysticism of everything. That's right. Uh, Duel of the Fates, which was the big centerpiece of the Phantom Menace, everybody loves it. Uh, was the were the London voices in the studio with the London Symphony Orchestra recording that part of the movie and that concert suite at the same time as you were performing it? We certainly had the choir in the studio at points. I wonder if because obviously these things go on at different times. I have a feeling that the choir would have also recorded that um, in probably in the studio without us to get a really good mix. But they certainly um, came into the studio with us. Perhaps um, that would have been more in the case of filming something like that and to get an idea of how it was going to sound. It's certainly easier for um, engineers to have things separate so you can mix the the levels but i i do remember them being there amazing amazing choir across the back i mean it was a very very full studio <laughs> it's already when when we're at full capacity um it's it's already fairly crowded and you know with all the microphones and and obviously the star wars soundtracks always have piano as well and many percussion instruments and there has to be a, a degree of separation between. But the first time, certainly, we heard Jewel of the Fates, that was like, wow, this is something that kind of hits you right to your core. And you really, um, it was such a, mem it's an amazing piece of music in that it's so memorable. And I mean, the fact that it's just used in so many, you know, guises on TV and sport and things, it it's really shows what an incredible new element he brought to that kind of Star Wars universe. Oh, yeah. And that ostinato in the strings, that's that's difficult to play. I mean, that's pretty much through the whole piece. I mean, it's da 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 I mean, that's all the way through. That's a lot of fingering and bowing and everything. You had to be exhausted at the end of it. It's His music requires a great deal of stamina. And what makes it difficult in recordings is that you have to give 100% all the time because you never know if that is the take, that's that's gonna be the one that's used. So whether it's that's in the first 15 minutes or the last 15 minutes of the day, you need to have that incredible amount of energy when you're playing. And yes, his the ostinato writing can be, you sort of see pages of the same things and you just think, wow, that's a trip to the physio later. But it's very effective, this sort of, yeah, that kind of um, pattern in music um, is, is often used. But I do remember it, it was very exciting. And, and you just have to, you know, he'll, he'll always say, like, let's give ourselves a few minutes to just have, you know, to just take a breather. Most of the time they think of the sort of brass because they're really 
punching it out and there is so only so much brass uh, lips can kind of take but um he do, he is mindful of the the strings having you know a million notes sometimes in a day so <laughs> but it is worth it i'm i never get fed up of playing that that particular number for sure And like you said, you performed on Attack of the Clones and also Revenge of the Sith. So you got to perform on the entire prequel trilogy. I'm sure you were not thrilled that the sequel trilogy did not come back to London. Um, but I, I, I know it had to be a thrill to, to say that you were part of that. Uh, you're part of the Star Wars recording family now. Yes, that's something I can always be happy and proud about. It was unfortunate we were not able to, um, not through any fault of anybody apart from really, you know, John Williams is not a young man now. And if it was me, I'd want to, I wouldn't want to have to leave my home really when you're doing big, big projects. And it is something that I'm incredibly proud of, especially being a huge fan. It means, it means so much to me to have participated in something which has a huge, huge history, um, which sort of, I don't know, it it's kind of transcends music and film. It's it's a huge part of of culture in a way. And, and even when we've carried on sort of recording things like, um, you know, video, um, video scores for Star Wars or his... Um, or for the theme park, the Disney Star Wars music for the theme park. And I do really intend to go there <laughs> and just stand there sort of by the Millennium Falcon. But yes, I played on that. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, that will be a great, um, a great day when I, when I can actually do that. But yeah, it's, it's a great thing for the orchestra to have had this long history with, with John Williams for sure. And, you know, this iconic music that I think really just transcends a lot of generations. It does. It really, really does. I There are now basically three generations of, of people around the world that are now entrenched in Star Wars and will be forever Star Wars fans. Mostly a lot because of what you guys did with the London Symphony Orchestra. So I have to give my own thanks for that. I don't know about that, but I think... If a film has an exceptional score, it makes a huge, huge difference. Music really elevates things. You know, you can have the most incredible action that's happening on screen, but if it's not the right kind of music, I think it it can let a film it can let a film down. And John Williams has definitely proven that he is, you know, un un really unrivaled with being able to take on so many um, films, you know, that iconic, that are so amazing that people remember, you know, if their youth, you know, it's like, 
you know, for me, E.T. was something that was a huge film when I, when I was growing up. But um, the the music stands alone. We could, you know, we could play John Williams music in the concert hall every night for a week and sell it out in probably an hour. This is some, you know, this is just fact because people are so engrossed in it. He's created this completely different sound world that just you don't really even need to see the images. You see them in your head the moment that you hear that music. We've, you know, we've been able to play live to the to the New Hope film. Um, maybe it was 18 months ago, we did a, a few a few concerts of that, which was amazing, really, really incredible to have people able to watch a film, but to hear the score live from the ver from the original orchestra, um, which I, I just thought was amazing. I, I really, really enjoyed that. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a pinch me moment for you. You got to perform the original score. Yes, I do get a bit offended when people ask me if I was involved in the original recording. And I was <laughs> like, I don't quite know how old you think I am. But um, obviously, yeah, it was, you know, I'm forever grateful to have been part of the, the prequel films. One last question, uh, Maxine, and I'm just really curious. What John Williams score that you were not able to be a part of, do you wish you could have performed on the original soundtrack? Oh, E.T. No question. <laughs> I love E.T. It's, mm, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, the orchestra did Raiders of the Lost Art, but that was before I joined, because that's in the, you know, it's a long time before I joined. But I love playing E.T. I think some of of that writing is just so beautiful and i just love how um you know steven spielberg let um let john williams have his heart you know he let him basically compose what he wanted and steven spielberg basically fitted the action on screen to what to what he had written and i think that really shows whenever you play in a concert version the last few last few minutes of of the actual music it just plays like a proper symphonic piece and yeah i would love to have, have been a part part of that recording but we do get to play it in concert so that makes me very happy yeah okay good You're part of a dream fulfilled <laughs> yes well, Maxine, thank you so very much for joining me for this interview. I really appreciate you giving us some insight to, to this incredibly iconic score. And uh, congratulations on being able to achieve your dream as well. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have been a part of your, of your podcast and talk about something that I love very much. What fantastic insights into being in that room to record such a great score. Of course, there were some veterans of the LSO that had performed with Williams on the 1977 Star Wars score. Principal trumpet player Maurice Murphy was back to lead the brass section, which of course gave Williams the chance to write some great pieces for that part of the orchestra, something he hadn't really done in a long time. When you think Star Wars, 
you think trumpets, and you can tell that Murphy and his crew relish the opportunity to showcase the strength of the London Symphony Orchestra's brass section in the parades, the marches, and of course the fanfares. And that comes through in the music for the opening crawl. Since I hadn't heard the music on the soundtrack CD, I was nervous about how the movie would open. Would Williams use different music for the opening since Luke Skywalker isn't a part of this trilogy? But of course, the main theme doesn't really just belong to Luke, but the entire Star Wars galaxy. So it's only fitting to open with the same music that had us cheering more than a decade earlier. But this music does not sound as bold and strong as what Williams composed in the original trilogy. And perhaps that's the point. There is a difference in the opening theme, particularly at the beginning. For episode four, there is a distinct flourish as the orchestra kicks in. But that's somewhat subdued in episode one. Was that intentional? Could be. After that, Williams does something very brave. He gives us music that feels different in a Star Wars film abstract and elusive in the strings as we pan down to space above the planet Naboo, giving away to heraldic use of brass as the Republic's ambassadors land on a trade federation ship. Williams actually did this before for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and more recently, which of course you discussed recently, Jeff, The Lost World, setting up that what was to follow would be different from what we might be expecting. After those two Jedi, played by Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, arrive to resolve this trade dispute, we get this music as the Federation leaders talk with a hologram of a partially seen man. Anyone who knows the music of Star Wars knows what this music is. 
That is the music for Emperor Palpatine, introduced to us in Return of the Jedi. This would be the only music choice that I have to disagree with in the entire film, Sadiq. Essentially, Williams, and George Lucas by extension, is giving away the future identity of this man. It is another example of clear musical foreshadowing. Williams gives gives us the ultimate reveal that Senator Palpatine, now Chancellor Palpatine at the end of the film, will become the Emperor and he has scored a victory even if it isn't obvious to us. But it's definitely not clear to the story's protagonists. The victory parade at the end, when Gungans and the Naboo celebrate, is scored with a children's choir that sneaks in the Emperor's theme as the main melody rewritten in a major key with a much faster tempo. What do you think of using the Empress theme at this point of the film, Jeff? It's very sneaky, and if I remember correctly, I found myself smiling the first time I heard this while watching the parade scene. Yes, George Lucas was giving us almost the same kind of victory ceremony that he provided in Star Wars, just one of the many callbacks to Star Wars in this film. But using the Emperor's theme was pure genius. Hey, he had already given away that Palpatine will be the Emperor, so why not go all out here? I read an article by the Boston Globe's Richard Dyer, who attended those score recordings, where he quoted John Williams about a part of this parade music that is, quote, struggling to be the Imperial March, end quote. I don't have the sheet music, but I think I can hear the part he's referencing. I think that's the Imperial March in like triple time, and an interesting way to blend the Emperor's theme and Vader's theme as extreme foreshadowing. I'm not really a fan of all the musical foreshadowing in this film, as I said, but as a musical composition, it's pretty amazing. And as a side note, I like the children's laughter as well, which wasn't used extensively in the film version, but can be heard on the soundtrack release. It's a little homage to Jerry Goldsmith's use of children's laughter in the end credits of Poltergeist. So there are a few other themes from the original trilogy that appear in The Phantom Menace. The main theme, obviously. The Force theme is there for our Jedi heroes. Yoda's theme makes a brief cameo, as does Jabba the Hutt's theme. And we get some new thematic material for The Phantom Menace too. And we'll start by talking about the centerpiece of the score, Duel of the Fates. Yes, that piece of music doesn't get fully unleashed until the third act of the film and even then doesn't play in full until the end credits. For the rest of the movie before that, 
It's a slow build-up that features the London voices whispering some unrecognisable words every time we see the main villain, a new villain in Darth Maul, on the screen. Williams is using a technique that he first employed in Amistad just a year earlier, using an existing piece of text in his score for dramatic effect. In this case, the text is a Celtic poem called The Battle of the Trees. In it, a wizard brings trees to life and turns them into an army. Here's a piece of text Williams chose to use. Quote, Under the tongue root, a fight most dread, another rages behind in the head. End quote. He took that text in its original form and translated it to Sanskrit because he liked the heavy use of vowels in Sanskrit that made it sound very religious. And you remember he used Sanskrit for the choral pieces in Temple of Doom. So in The Phantom Menace, the word Kora translates to most dread and Ratama is translated as inside the head. The original meaning of the Celtic poem is lost a bit in the translation, but the tone is definitely there. Williams employed a style for composing this theme that he has used before, but not too often. A good example is in The Empire Strikes Back and the use of the Imperial March. He started with creating the concert suite of the theme and then worked backwards to place it in the film. This way, elements of the main themes can be just hinted at early in the film, in anticipation of their full depiction in the action sequences, in the conclusion of the film, and of course the masterful use of full concert arrangements during the end credits, which only John Williams can do this well. This is the way it's showcased in The Phantom Menace, when Darth Maul and our Jedi heroes finally meet for the big battle. Note that the chorus is no longer whispering. There's more to Duel of the Face than just the choral portions. Just as the title suggests, there's a duality to the music underneath the words. The ostinato, which I talked about with Maxine Kwok, is the prominent feature, and it feels like it and the choral component are representing the aggressive nature of Darth Maul and his quest to kill the Jedi. And then, often while the ostinato is playing, there's a melody playing on the horns that could be recognizing the dignity of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. 
It's obvious through the stronger appearance of the ostinato that Williams is giving Darth Maul the upper hand, which he does until the end. But I really like how the Jedi's musical motif in this piece is not just a rehash of the Force theme. We touched on it before, but I just want to talk a little bit about how Williams' musical foreshadowing preempts either the action on screen or indeed the story and, and character arcs themselves. We get two examples in The Phantom Menace. First, you hear the choral Sanskrit words whispered just before Qui-Gon gets killed, signalling the coming triumph of the Sith over the Jedi. And then there's the reveal of the real Phantom Menace during Qui-Gon's funeral, when we hear a very subtle, very subtle musical reveal in the harp and the woodwinds as the camera pans to Ian McDermott as Palpatine. The other major theme in the film is the music for young Anakin Skywalker. Williams did something unusual in creating this theme, though it might have been the only solution. He took the Imperial March and employed what he has called reverse engineering by crafting something more innocent and pure out of some notes that make up Darth Vader's theme. Here's the music for Anakin after he wins the big pod race. I'm sure you can hear that little bit at the end that feels like Vader's theme. Now that you've brought up the big pod race, Jeff, can we talk a little bit about it? Absolutely. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it. Well, in the vein of American composer John Philip Sousa's Marine Marches, the flag parade music is very reminiscent of the start of what we hear at the start of the chariot race in Ben-Hur. With music by Miklos Rocha, Williams uses heraldic trumpets as each of the alien races are revealed to the thousands in the stands accompanied by a flag parade. Very heavy with military style drums and a big brassy musical fanfare, this piece is almost lost in the movie's edit and sound effects but is presented as a full two minute fanfare on the album.
The cinematic allusions to Ben-Hur are all over The Phantom Menace. A virgin birth in a desert location, a Christ-like figure in Qui-Gon Jinn, slaves and slave owners, a chariot-esque race for freedom, and a prophecy of the Chosen One. I've never actually come across any factual account of this, but I do believe Williams channeled his inner Miklos Russia, so to speak. The Padre sequence of the film is clearly influenced by the chariot race in Ben-Hur, both in, in style, character, motives, as well as the way the music is used, or not as the case may be. In the pod race, there was purposely no music during the first two laps, and it only makes a dramatic appearance partway through the third lap, clearly to heighten the action on screen and to help the sell and to help sell the fantastical sequence to the audience. This is a tried and tested technique to give credibility to the sequence on screen, like the pod race, through the visuals and the sound effects, just like the speeder bike chase in Return of the Jedi where in fact there was no music during the whole sequence. I never picked up on the connections to Ben-Hur and The Phantom Menace, but you make a very strong case for that, Sadiq. I'll pay more attention to that the next time I watch the movie, which might be pretty soon, because I'm really anxious to see those connections. I had always thought the pod race felt like I was watching a video game being played for me. It looked a little too slick and polished, unlike pretty much every action sequence in the original trilogy. The sound design is outstanding, but because almost all of it was created on a computer, it didn't feel real to me. Actually, Jeff, I'd like to uh, dispel that often held mistruth that almost all of the pod race in The Phantom Menace was CGI. A lot of it was created using traditional techniques, Yes, of course, augmented with cutting-edge digital tools and techniques. In actual fact, The Phantom Menace holds the record for the Star Wars film which employed more real model work than any other. Well, that's very interesting, and thanks for clearing that up for me. The point, though, is that it doesn't feel lived in, like, for example, the speeder bike chase in Return of the Jedi. As for that music that comes in at the end of the pod race, it's mostly reused music from an earlier scene. Music that I like very much and was kind of sad that it gets reused for this scene. Williams wrote music for the finale of the pod race, but in the late post-production process, I think the scene was altered and the music didn't fit anymore. This is part of the music Williams wrote originally for this finale and it appears in the track Anakin defeats Sebulba in the first soundtrack release. And here's that piece of music that's reused instead.
Okay, so I think it's a good choice to have switched out the music, just like John Williams had to do with the big chase, the big action sequence in Return of the Jedi. I love the xylophone in this, Sadiq. I don't recall Williams really employing the xylophone as much before, and it really brings out the urgency of the piece. Every time I hear this, I find myself playing air xylophone. You and me both, Jeff, it's easy to do that, isn't it? The use of the xylophone is so prominent in that piece. And yes, and yes, it's a curious that it's the same music used as our heroes escape from Naboo at the top of the film. But I agree it was most likely dictated by a late editorial decision. It happens a lot. There's one more theme in this film that I'm not sure most people recognize. It belongs to Qui-Gon Jinn, played with some low-key mastery by Liam Neeson. Though this Jedi Master is part of the film from the beginning, his theme doesn't show up until the 71-minute mark, after Anakin's pod race victory when they all return to Anakin's house to get him ready to leave. And then it gets a big treatment as Qui-Gon fights Darth Maul on Tatooine just before escaping. Possibly because Jedi use the Force for knowledge and defense, never for attack, Williams doesn't use big strong brass for the theme. But the strings are playing strongly though. I also love that piece, and yes, it is used very sparingly. Its final performance comes as Qui-Gon lays dying and tells Obi-Wan to train Anakin. For such a major character, this theme does not get performed as much. But then again, it's not really Qui-Gon's story. And because this is a Star Wars film, the end credits gives us the concert suite versions of the two new main themes, Duel of the Fates and Anakin's theme. It's right at the end that you can hear how Williams reverse-engineered this theme to foreshadow the dark path Anakin will take. Thank you. 
As you mentioned, Sadiq, many people bought the original soundtrack to The Phantom Menace in droves. It became one of Williams' biggest soundtrack sellers since Return of the Jedi, but a lot of Star Wars fans and John Williams fans absolutely hated it. This came two years after Sony Classical gave us a nearly complete collection of music from the original trilogy that finally put the music in film order and allowed for a better listening experience. That was not true for the first soundtrack release of The Phantom Menace. Fans wrote to Sony Classical demanding more music, and, well, we got our wish in November 2000 with The Ultimate Edition. It gave us almost every second of music as heard in the film, complete with the actual edits as they are presented in the film. It's not a great presentation, which is probably one reason why the remaining Star Wars films never got this Ultimate Edition treatment. So John Williams got a big boost of record sales of the soundtrack and earned a Grammy nomination for the score. Randy Newman's music for A Bug's Life gave Newman the win and only his second Grammy. And as a big shock to me, the score was not nominated for an Oscar. I'm not sure if it was a been-there-done-that feel for the Academy in terms of Star Wars, but its omission was a sign of things to come for the prequel trilogy score. Despite all that, I count The Phantom Menace as my favorite of the prequel scores because of the creation of Duel of the Fates and the way Williams created Anakin's theme. And it's been great discussing it and analyzing it with you today, Sadiq. Thank you so much, Jeff, for inviting me again onto the baton. I agree that this score is the best of the three from the prequels, and yes, Duel of the Fates is the centrepiece, the most memorable, and the piece of music that has stood the test of time, but the whole score is bold in its approach. The extensive use of choral pieces, the quasi-biblical feel of a number of the pieces, as we've already discussed Williams and Lucas, could have reused many of the tunes from the original trilogy. But no, they presented to us a whole lot of new thematic musical material, unlike the recently wrapped sequel trilogy, which actually has relatively few new themes. But you'll be getting to those in good time, Jeff. Oh, and we've done a whole podcast on The Phantom Menace and not mention a certain Gungun at all. And I think everyone is glad we didn't mention him. So I hope all of you enjoyed this podcast episode. And again, my deepest thanks to Maxine Kwok for taking the time to share her memories of being a part of the orchestra recording of this score. Williams brings it way down for his next score in his collaboration with director Alan Parker. It's an adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize winning memoir, Angela's Ashes. I hope you'll join me on the next episode for a listen to the tender music written for that film. Thanks for listening, and please make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com with any thoughts or questions you have about the show or John Williams. Until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>